the science is telling us this is a time of major turmoil, really, for the brain. We're going through these huge changes, and that is adaptive and productive, and it is what is helping us to be the parents we need to be, but it's also really hard. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Parents, did you find yourself scrambling for words, losing your keys and forgetting basically everything when you had a baby? Non-parents, perhaps you witnessed it in your best friend, your sibling, your colleague. The jokes about how women are lobotomized by motherhood are damaging and misogynistic. The term baby brain has been used to keep women in their place and the domestic space for decades. But how was I to reconcile that knowledge with a brain that felt like it had turned to cheese? Which is why I was so excited to speak to science writer Chelsea Connorboy. With her new book, Mother Brain, and a searing recent New York Times op-ed, Chelsea uses science to myth-bust so many ideas we have around biology, birth and the brain. We discuss why the idea of maternal instinct is unhelpful to new mothers and fathers, why the golden hour is not the only chance you have to bond with your baby, why oxytocin, aka the love hormone, is not just released by birth and breastfeeding, and and this is a big one, the fact that a birthing parent's brain shrinks after birth is not a negative thing, but a sharpening of the synapses. Chelsea doesn't deny that the brain changes through giving birth, but the physiological changes are not relegated to the biological parent, she argues. They exist in every primary carer. I found Chelsea's research as fascinating as I did reassuring, and I really hope this episode helps any new parents or anyone supporting new parents, and may help guide us towards a more equitable vision of what parenthood looks like. Welcome to Doing It Right, Chelsea. Thanks so much for having me. I've been so looking forward to talking to you because whilst I hated the idea of being compromised by motherhood and I think really fought against it, and I feel like however much I wanted to resist it, I was absolutely experiencing mum brain, mummy brain. Was it your own experience, this tension that led you to want to write the book? It was a tension. I think while I very much relate to what you just described, I think it happened for me a, a little sooner in the process. It was really this tension between what I expected brand new motherhood to feel like and what it actually felt like in terms of worry, really. I mean, I was so filled with worry as a brand new mother, and I wasn't just worried about my baby's well-being, but I was 
worried about the worry itself because I hadn't anticipated it. Mm. I was concerned that it was sort of um, taking the place of things that I was supposed to feel like, you know, overwhelming love and the kind of certainty of having arrived at this thing that I had wanted and and was excited about. Mm. And it's something that so many people experience. I mean, I had a voice note just this morning from a close friend of mine saying, you know, this is not what I thought it would be. And she sounded so sad um, because I think she had seen how some of her friends had experienced early motherhood and thought she was going to have the same experience. And I think it's really interesting that in no other facet of life do we expect ourselves to have the same experience. We don't expect that we're going to have the same experience at work. We don't expect that we're going to have the same relationship with our parents. But that idea of kind of motherhood, particularly early motherhood, as you said, is quite entrenched as a cultural story. It is. It is so it is so entrenched. And that's really at the heart of this book, because I I, I think that the science tells a, a new kind of story about what mm. it means to become a parent. But as as I was telling that story, I realized I needed to go back and look at the old stories and why we have them, and particularly this notion of maternal instinct. And I think one reason why we expect it of everyone is that we've kind of been told that it's our biological essence, that we are prepared and ready to be mothers, and that this is something that's sort of innate and automatic and uniquely female. And that's just not true. That is the accepted wisdom for a long time, isn't it? Is that maternal behavior is innate, that parenting comes more naturally to women than men, that women have this primal urge and instinct that men don't have. They hear the baby cry at night while their husband sleeps on, for example. And I was talking to some of my friends about your book and they said, really, it's not innate? Then why do I react to my baby this way? You know, why am I affected by this and my husband's not? And that's been the case since the baby was born. Can you talk a little bit about your findings, which argue against the mothering instinct? I think I ar it really argues against like a particular definition of the mothering instinct. And this, that is that um, it, it's this idea that really came from moral notions of motherhood, religious ideas of, of what a woman is and how her parenting instinct is, you know, stronger than any other instinct and even fear itself and that it is really particular to her. And these were ideas that were, were written into science by really religious men in the early 20th century. And they became so much a part of the story of what we, we tell ourselves about what it feels like to be a, a mother that I think it's easy to, to, it's like self-confirming, you know, it's easy to sort of see that in our own experiences. But the reality is that, um, for a birthing parent in particular, you know, you have these intense hormonal and bio physiological shifts that happen through pregnancy and childbirth and lactation. And those things really propel the, the changes, the real like upheaval to the brain. And so it's not that there aren't these physiological changes. There certainly are. It's just not that it's just that they're not exactly what we've been told that they are. It doesn't happen automatically. It takes time to develop and there's real power in it. And there's also real vulnerability in it. And not only that, it's, it's, 
it's not only unique to, to women that fathers and other parents go through it. They experience hormonal shifts. There are very different um, mechanisms that change their brain, but they end up at a quite similar place, especially if they're engaged as a primary care caregiver to their children. Um, and I guess that's it. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at with this book is not that we don't go through these changes. In fact, we go through really dramatic ones and that part in, in many ways is missing from our perinatal care and, and, and the cultural conversation around parenthood. It's just that they're not quite what we've been told that they are. I was so fascinated by that study um, a couple of years ago that looked at the changes in the amygdala from a female primary caregiver and found what we have been saying happens to a mother for a long time. But then when they looked at the amygdala in male primary caregivers, they found an almost identical response, which really completely dismisses this idea of innateness, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And it, 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 what I think what's, what is innate is, you know, this capacity to develop a caregiving circuitry, but that is universal across the species. <laughs> it's not, it's not something that is, uh, you know, just limited to mothers. And, um, so I, th those were fascinating. That was a fascinating study out of Israel. And, and the, the thing that w was really powerful in that was, was not only did they find that, that similar amygdala activation in, in primary caregiving fathers, but when they looked across all fathers, so this was, um, they, this was a study that compared heterosexual and, and gay couples. And when they looked at, at all of the fathers in that group, it was almost like a dose effect, a particular measure of connectivity that's related to social cognition or how you read and respond to other another person's social cues, like a baby's. If the more time the fathers spent with their children alone, specifically with their children, the, the greater connectivity they saw in that particular connection between the amygdala and a particular part of the cortex. The idea of instinct is problematic to lots of feminist scholars as well, isn't it? Feminist scholars have been telling us for years that that the stories we tell around motherhood are problematic and um, yet they really hang on. I mean, maternal instinct is I see it as something that really shapes how we talk to one another about parenthood. You talked about that sameness and and how your friend, you know, felt like she had seen um, her, you know, her, her friends experience new motherhood in a certain way, and it wasn't happening quite that way for her. I think it's one thing that I really love about the science is we've we've had you know these these scholars telling us that things are different than we we've said, but we've also had this kind of like pseudoscientific idea saying we're supposed to feel a certain way. And this science, I just feel like it gives us so much more room to, to um, like bring our real experiences to the table and to talk about it in a way that feels safer because we, the science is telling us this is a time of major turmoil really for the brain. We're going through these huge changes and, um, and that is adaptive and productive, and it is what is helping us to be the parents we need to be, but it's also really hard. 
We've long been told that a woman's brain shrinks during pregnancy, and this is largely due to a 1997 study where a group of radiologists and anaesthetists found that the woman's brain shrinks during pregnancy and takes six months to get back to its former size. When did this get debunked? And do you think the that study still lingers in people's minds when we think about the mum brain? There's a really fascinating set of studies that um, came out of Spain in the last few years that uh, looked at women's brains before they were pregnant, immediately after pregnancy, at two years postpartum, and then again at six years postpartum. And they've tracked volume losses across key parts of the brain, particularly those related to theory of mind or how we um, um, uh, read other people's mental states and emotions. And those that that shrinkage is also thought to be adaptive, that it's like a kind of fine tuning of the brain for parenthood. So it's still true that it still seems to be true that the brain does go does shrink. It's just that that's like a really powerful adaptation. It's not it's not um, a, a degenerative factor. It's really um, it's really one that's like helping our brain to do better at the things that we need to do as parents. That's so interesting that the data is the same. It's just how we, how it's been how we interpreted it. by science. That, yeah. yeah, that's changed so much. One of the researchers told me this fascinating story about how, so they, the this group of women who are um, based in Spain, they did this, they started the study really, they all focused on other things, other kinds of areas of brain plasticity, but they were thinking about becoming mothers themselves. And so they designed the study, which was really a first of its kind longitudinal study, because they wanted to know more about what ha might happen to their own brains. And, and they, when they first, when they came out with the, their first findings, which, um, received a lot of attention um, showing volume loss from before and after pregnancy. Even their colleagues, even people who worked, who were neuroscientists, including people who worked in, in the field of, of um, adolescent brain imaging, said things to them like, oh, it's the brain loss. I can't remember anything. Like, I, I, the, you know, this volume loss, my memory, like, it, that was the message that people were taking away from it. And they were like, no, no, that's not, that's not what we think is happening here. But it's so ingrained in how we, how we think about parenthood that we kind of jumped to that that conclusion that this loss that must be the explanation for you know our own our own impairment um and that's like a real message in the book is like i i i i feel like not only do we have such an incomplete understanding of of mommy brain as something that undermines women but we've also you know really oversimplified the idea of of who gets to do this whose biology determines them to be really good caregivers I think it was a piece in the Scientific American which suggested that brain fog may be a matter of expectation. So, for example, when a pregnant woman loses her car keys, she might blame pregnancy brain without recalling the time she lost her car keys before right. she was pregnant. Right. And I think I probably do do that. I yes. think when I can't string a sentence together, I, I probably had times when I could string a sentence together before. Yeah, there is has actually been a study that looked that measured people's um, own uh, measured pregnant women's own um, feelings about their memory, like how how impaired they thought they were, and then ran cognitive tests in the lab, memory tests, and found that the women 
reported memory problems, but they didn't actually demonstrate memory problems in the lab. You know, the the research around memory is really mixed. There is like some some research that points to the idea that um, that there are challenges in memory and and particularly during pregnancy, some during the early postpartum period. And there's some indications, particularly from the animal literature, that that is real and that and that it may be linked to decreased volume in the hippocampus, which is a really important part, uh, you know, part of the brain for for memory. It's interesting in the in rodents, researchers know that that rebounds and not only that but that mother rats show really heightened cognitive function later in life and have a neuroprotective motherhood has a neuroprotective effect for them in the long term and their researchers are just really starting to look at memory in a meaningful way in in parents and in the long term um both in both in the short term and in the long term and there's a fascinating set of studies that have looked at older adults. So using huge databases of, of brain imaging, um, both in Australia and in the UK and comparing. So this is in adults who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s and older and comparing parents and non-parents. And um, basically they found that people with children have what they call younger looking brains. So their brains are aging, but they're just aging slower. That's so interesting. I want to come back to that in one second because I want to just pick up on what you were saying about memory. I do feel like my memory has gotten really bad over the last five years. But what I often wonder is how much of that's due to sleep deprivation. It's a really huge question that we have very little answers to. We have almost no research that looks at how sleep affects um, uh, uh, the parental brain and what that, what that like looks like in, in the brain, what that sleep loss means. And, um, I think that we're going to start to have more answers to that question in the years to come, but it's a glaring <laughs> omission in my mind because mm. <laughs> we all experience it and all, we all, you know, experience that sleep loss. And we have that, that loss at a time when our brains are being asked to do so much more and to change and and to shift like moment to moment, especially in those early weeks and months. But we like often accept it as just like part of new parenthood and it is, but we have given it so little attention and it's really problematic for a lot of people, particularly around mental health. Yeah, because if you look at sleep deprivation on its own without parenthood, it gives a lot of the same things that we associate with mummy brains. So memory loss and scattiness and a loss in verbal dexterity, heightened emotional state, headaches, stomach aches, like all so many things that that we associate. So, but I guess it's impossible to test, isn't it? Because you'd have to have a control study of parents who were very well rested and parents who were very well sleep deprived, but then you you don't know what the hormones are doing in all of that. So it's kind of impossible, it is, isn't it? And it's also really hard to recruit people for those studies because they're in the midst of new parenthood. And and if if it sort of like the reverse of like, well, if you recruit people and try to impose like sleep deprivation on them, well, they're you're definitely going to be out because they're already not getting enough. And so, yeah, it's a really, really challenging thing to study. And I think also we're just 
the sleep science is also somewhat new. And so making the connections with the parental science, parental brain research, which is also new, I think it's just, it's, it's happening, but it's, it, it could be quicker for, for those of us who are in the midst of it. When we use the term mommy brain, we are talking about a deficit, basically memory loss, scattiness. You write, mothers are forgetful, frazzled, consumed, hindered by our own biology, perpetually at the edge of moral delinquency and certainly less interesting. You're being ironic in case that's not clear. <laughs> I assumed that your brain went wibbly for a few years with hormones and tiredness and then you returned to your normal self around, you know, when your child's about two. So I was so surprised to read that the changes made to the functional architecture in your brain through caring for a child can last a lifetime. When was this discovered and in what way does the brain never go back? Where does it go to? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. It's it's really new research. I mean, the the um, the studies we were talking about before that came out of Spain, those they did um, follow ups looking at two years postpartum and then again again at six years postpartum, and they found that for the most part, really with the exception of the hippocampus, which does have some volume recovery or seems to, um, a lot of the other changes persisted. Uh, six years. And so they raise the question that perhaps these changes are permanent. And then at kind of the other end of the lifespan, we have those studies looking at the brains of older adults and seeing differences between parents and non-parents. And I I mean, I think this is part of the the problem in how we talk about parenthood is there, I mean, we often, the way we frame it is apart from memory, we sort of talk about the, you know, the, the baby blues and, and postpartum depression, but there is like generally a sense that things will return, <laughs> return to normal, that you're kind of just waiting for things to settle out. And I think that sells us short in many ways, because this isn't, it isn't a return to normal. It's really a new life stage. And those researchers in Spain actually compared the changes in the brain that they found to changes in the brain in adolescent adolescent girls and found like very similar morphometric patterns and and kind of um, degree of change between the two groups. And that's not to say that like the, a parent's brain changes in the same ways at, that an adolescent brain does, but it does it does change just a, like a similar degree. And those are, that's a period that we recognize as like a major transition to a new stage of life that's driven by hormonal changes that is fundamentally adaptive. And that comes, that brings with it certain really important vulnerabilities, but also is part of ushering us into a new, a new time in our life. And I, I hope that we can have like kind of a similar conversation around the parental brain, that it is a really transformational time. You mentioned the postpartum depression or postnatal depression, as we call it here. And that's an experience that um, I think 10% of women experience. Possibly more than that. Yeah, at least. Yep. In the 80s, doctors thought that postpartum depression was a soft quality of life issue, quote, rather than a public health concern until Peter Schmidt came along. Who is Peter Schmidt and how did he change how we see the mother brain and depression? So Peter Schmidt is the chief of behavioral endocrinology at the National Institute of Mental Health in the United States. And 
I talked with him partly because he was part of this generation that that worked to change how we think of postpartum depression. You know, he talked with me about how on the one hand you had researchers who thought that this was not really worth investigating that it was just kind of like a a part of of the natural course of of motherhood and then on the other hand you had feminists who you know rightfully were skeptical that mostly male researchers were trying to pathologize the their experiences and through the 80s and 90s we just worked really well advocates really worked hard to raise the profile of postpartum mood and anxiety disorders to make it clear just how common they were. Um, you said, mentioned 10%. It's really been hard to figure out how, how many people experience these, but it's, you know, up to 20% by some estimates. Writing about this research, talking about it more, I hope really could help lessen the stigma around those things. We all, every person's brain changes in new parenthood, not only the one in five people who experience postpartum depression. I I talked with one woman who is a stress physiologist who said the degree of change that happens in a pregnant person's body and particularly the the shifts in, in cortisol and the other things that happen that control our stress response, she said that it's really a miracle that anyone gets through it without experiencing a, a mood disorder. And so I, I think the the message is really that we need to pay more attention to, to these demands on our bodies and our brains and give people the support that they need. Yeah, I was fascinated. I can't remember who I was speaking to who said exactly what you were saying, that it is, it's kind of a wonder that more people don't have postnatal depression given how much is going on and that we should almost see it as like, not that you're lucky if you don't have it, but not that it's not that it's something really rare and that can easily be avoided. It's, I mean, I didn't, I screened negative, myself, I screened negative for postpartum depression, but I still had pretty debilitating anxiety. And so, you know, those numbers are based partly on the, the limits of the tools we have. But also, yeah, I mean, I think that there's just, I, I really believe that you almost don't get to parenthood without experiencing some distress. And so if we acknowledge that possibility and we, one, you know, shape our social policies around it and do a better job designing our clinical care around that fact, but also change how we talk to one another about parenthood, then really everyone benefits from that, not only the people who might develop a diagnosis. I had postnatal depression and something I learned through being diagnosed is that it's not just something that you can get as soon as your child is born. I was diagnosed, I think, when my son was eight months old. And that, I think, again, reminds us of something really interesting that you obviously write extensively about with the mother brain is that like we shouldn't just be looking at what happens in the first six weeks that first six weeks is always cited as of paramount importance when all the big changes happen and of course it's really important but it's also just six weeks <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of mothering and parenting that that goes on for the rest of time exactly there's a really fascinating study in the united states that looked at, you know, here we have just the one, most most people have just the one six-week postpartum appointment and that's it. And um, 
and it looked at how many uh, looked at several hundred women and found that of however many of those women um, screened negative at that six week appointment, it followed up with them. Um, I think it was a few months in and found that something like 8% of them screened positive at that stage. And so there's really this, I, I feel like there's this, that six week appointment here is so inadequate because there are so many people who develop it well before that and struggle. And then there are people who develop it, you know, develop depression afterward and, and struggle and, and we don't have ways to help them really until they're in crisis and that's not enough. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Simply Roasted Crisps. Crisps with all the flavour, crunch and satisfaction of a normal crisp, but with 50% less fat, 25% less salt and under 99 calories per serving. Now, I love a crisp. Or 50. I like to think of myself as a crisp connoisseur. I won't bore you with my hierarchy of crispdom, but what I will say is that I have been historically sceptical of quote-unquote healthy crisps. It was a bad time for me when everyone was serving those root vegetable crisps at dinner. Anyway, I never believed a tasty crisp could be healthy until I tried Simply Roasted by the brilliantly named Mindful Snacker, who have spent 10 years honing their patented roasting process, which produces the only roasted potato crisp on the market. It's no surprise that these thick-cut crisps are award-winning. If you'd like to get in on the crunch, I have good news for you because Simply Roasted are offering 30% off your first purchase. Head to simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk and buy yourself a box using the code PANDORA30 for 30% off. That's simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk. Thank you very much to Simply Roasted Crisps. I also loved what you wrote about the golden hour and the pressure that it puts on that magical first hour after birth, we've been told that that's where the bonding happens. And if you don't breastfeed within that first hour, you might never get your baby to latch. And the well-known midwife in Agaskin rejected this idea of the critical window. She said, it makes it sound as if bad things will automatically happen if temporary separation places you and the, your baby in different places for a time. This is simply not true. And I think this would be so reassuring to people who have had complications after birth, to people who have had cesareans and things have happened so that they haven't managed to have that critical hour. And also to parents who have adopted, how can we kind of get that out there more? This is the major theme of the book. We're so often taught that things develop in um, a specific pattern, that they should feel a certain way. Exactly. That is just not scientifically true. And it's so um, problematic for exactly the reasons you've just stated. And um, one study that I love, and this is a very small study and we need more research around it, but um, there was a study that looked at uh, the brain response of people who had a C-section versus a vaginal birth and found that th there were differences. And they attributed that to the differences in, in particularly oxytocin function during labor. 
and um, that that was like important for for jumpstarting the changes to the parental brain and people who had c-sections didn't get that and that's like the happy hormone the love hormone exactly exactly yeah the one really drives social connection and we often get a lot of messaging around oxytocin about how it floods you and it floods your baby and it's the thing that kind of starts the bond and solidifies the bond the picture in the parental brain science is really um much more nuanced than that and what but with this particular study the researchers actually followed up of a few weeks later a few weeks into the postpartum period with those mothers and found that the differences between their brains had disappeared that experience with their baby you know the the time that they had had being exposed to these powerful stimuli that is a newborn had essentially you know closed that gap and there is just not one right way to an adaptive parent parental brain um and and there are there are many paths it doesn't it, it if you don't get the golden hour it doesn't mean that you aren't going to bond with your baby if you adopt it also doesn't mean that you're not going to bond with your baby that it what 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 i've come to see is really like the most important thing in in that bond is not any one point in time it's not even any one specific hormone it is time and attention experience really matters a lot I'd love to talk a little bit about why the good mother stereotype is so damaging. What is the history with this? And where do you think we are now with it? Through much of the 20th century, we had this string of of mostly, you know, men who were publishing books about how to raise a child and um the there was at the same time you know this the rise of like medical motherhood this idea that um you know for all for really important reasons like sanitation and and reducing infection and and steps that mothers could take at home to protect their children and to reduce childhood mortality but at the same time there were these books that were coming out published by men t- telling women how to raise their child and how this tracked with the the rise of child development as a field of of study and that really so that sort of shifted things from from people like relying on family knowledge and their communities to see how to raise children to looking at the experts to figure out the best way to do it and who who told them that they knew the best way way to do it and and that if they followed certain steps they would be a good mother and and good mothers raise good children and that i i think just put incredible pressure on on mothers and particularly in the middle of the 20th century we had had the rise of attachment theory and the idea that a, a child's well-being wasn't just tied to what a mother did how they cared for them for their children but also how they felt about them their maternal love was as important to their well-being as vitamins were to to their their health and I believe that you know love is an important and powerful force in a child's life but the, this became such a focus that the mother infant relationship was given the 
paramount importance sort of above everything else. And, and it was studied as something in space that separate from its social context, separate from a family's economic context, separate from other relationships in that child's life. And it really became this, the center of this idea that good mothers, good, loving, attentive, self-sacrificing mothers raised good children. And you asked where we are with it today. And in some ways, I feel like we don't have those single male published books, you know, kind of dominating the the parenting advice. Dr. Spock. Yes, exactly. Landscape anymore. What we have is many voices. And and in many ways, I think that that can be good because the, the advice sort of like, you know, we have this flood of advice and it can be challenged and, and built upon and um, questioned in real time. And so that's really good. But on the other hand, we also have this flood of advice and often comes with this, a similar message of good mothers produce good children. And if we Google enough, we'll find the answers that will help us to be that good mother. And that's almost never true. <laughs> you know, that the it created the disservice of it is is that it creates this anxiety and and um and a sense of judgment. And and it and it can be a distraction from what we really need to do, which is, you know, to to turn to our kids, to pay attention to our kids and to to work with um, the community of, of adults around us and around them to figure out what they need. Something I think about a lot is that 75 percent of women in the UK are now working outside of the home and yet mothers spend more time with their children than they did in the 1970s. So there's definitely, and I think social media has a large part to play in this as well, um, in what Jacqueline Rose, the feminist critic Jacqueline Rose calls the neoliberal intensification of parenting, the loadedness of your parental identity, um, whether you work in or outside the home, it, it does feel sometimes like we're spinning towards um, kind of explosion there are so many only so many hours in the day i think so much of that is tied up in in that like supremacy of the mother child relationship and what that does is set us up to believe that we are the the ones who can do the best we're the the most important and we are extremely important but so are fathers so are other caregivers in a child's life and um and you have to relinquish. You have to relinquish. And this this is something that actually there is like a thread within within anthropology in, in particular that has challenged this for a while, that it has a challenge challenge specifically attachment theory for this very reason that that it has really put so much focus and it's so ubiquitous in how we talk about our relationships and our and, and our roles as parents, but it has put so much focus on the mother-infant connection. And the reality is that all through human history, it hasn't been just the mother and the child. There's always been a community of people raising children, and that's part of how humans evolved. And it's also part of how the parental brain developed. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it, it's, I make the case in the book that like humans evolved to be kind of ready 
to be captured by babies, including by babies who are not their own. And babies evolved to be good at capturing other adults because (laughs) they relied on them for their survival. They couldn't just rely on their mothers. Their mother had other children to care for. And so they had to capture their grandmothers or their fathers or their aunts or other, other women who were around. And that the what that did over time was was like make those connections possible and that's why we have you know the, the term is allo mothering or other mothering it's why it's such a part of our human culture that it's not just it's different than than other apes that it's it's not just it's not just mothers raising babies exclusively it's a much more communal effort and that has been removed from so much of our science around child development and family development. And I think it's really been a detriment to mothers and to families in general. I love what you said about the allo mother or the other mother, because I don't think you need to be a mother to have a mothering instinct or not if we're um, not talking about instinct, which obviously you don't agree yeah. with then the uh, a mothering ability um a mothering yes. fondness what is the best replacement for instinct what word should i use you know it's a very good question i i um i have a capacity of, capacity, of you know like good. a capable yes. to be a good like caregiver to be the person who is tending to someone else's needs who's reading them really closely and and le- learning a, a child and letting yourself be learned like way too long to just replace that word but that's how I think about it no capacity is great and and I think you're right we should be talking more about um caregiving perhaps than specific roles because so much of it is about socialization that um you know women have been told that they're good at this and that they'll feel like this and that this is because of this and um it's obviously time we reappraise those roles human mothers have never done it alone and and so we it's it's natural that we need support and that the the caring engaged adults around us are good at that and can develop it then they need time too you know this is something that i think about a lot is my my husband when we were pregnant with our our first child did like a daddy boot camp program and something that they talk about um in that program is maternal gatekeeping, you know, mothers who, who keep, who, who feel like they're supposed to do it all and feel like that they're, they're best at it. And so they, they do it all right. They don't let the fathers engage with their newborn, um, very much because they, they want to do it. They're worried about the baby and they're afraid that their husband can't do it. And because he had gone through this program, we were able to like have the language to talk about that and to try to, try to do it differently. Although I, I definitely did some of that. He, I, we also made sure that he had the time and exposure to the baby, the response, the, the experience taking responsibility for our son. And that is what's going to change a, a father. <laughs> the real time assuming the full responsibility for this vulnerable newborn who is nonverbal and communicates their needs through through cries and through subtle cues and a a parent, whether they birth the child or not, needs time and practice reading those cues in order to get better at understanding their children and meeting their needs. 
Thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right, Chelsea. It's been so fascinating talking to you. It's really fun, Pandora. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land.